Happy Recovery Month, sweet friends. For the month of September, I am partnering with Recover Alaska to bring you recovery stories, resources, and hope. The journey of recovery looks different for each one of us, so I will be sharing interviews that highlight a variety of ways that one person can recover. My wish is for these to bring you relief and hope as you learn that you are not alone and we can recover. This week's recovery session episode features Moira. Moira is an Alaska-based lawyer who is courageously sharing her story of recovery from alcohol. For additional recovery resources, head to blazebell.com recovery. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the recovery series. And I've got Moira here today to share her story of recovery. Thank you so much for being here. So glad to be here. Thanks, Blaze. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so we were just talking about this, but uh, the journey of recovery is different for everyone. And I really want these interviews to highlight different types of recovery journeys. And there's no right or wrong way to get sober, stay sober. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that you're going to share with us today. So I'd love to just start with, you know, kind of your story, you know, where did you come from? You know, if we think about our experience, our strength and our, and sharing our hope, you know, where did it all start? Um, what, you know, at what point did things start to become unmanageable and how did you see that? Sure. So um, I I guess I'm sort of a story of a pretty high functioning alcoholic who um, I went to law school and I did pretty well in law school. And then I moved home to Alaska and I clerked for a year and then I started working in a private law firm. And working in the private law firm was really stressful. It was 2008, uh, 2009. And so there was an economic crash going on, although, of course, now we know that it was nothing compared to what we're experiencing now. But I was really worried about just my own perfectionism. I wanted to do a great job, and I was worried I was going to lose my job. And then in 2010, I, um, and by the way, that wasn't rational, right? Like, I I can look back now and see the errors in my thinking, mm-hmm. Um because there was no reason to think that I wasn't going to keep my job and Alaska didn't get affected by that economic crisis, but that was kind of the errors in my thinking. Um, and then in 2010, and, and so my drinking during that time was really recreational and it was really fun. Um, the law firm would have Friday night um, uh, wine get togethers at five o'clock and it was just delightful because one of the partners um, was a real wine connoisseur. And so we would have great bottles of wine and then I would hop in the car and drive home. And, you know, it would be three, three, four glasses in, which was enough for me to Mm -hmm. feel affected. So it was not good decision-making on my part. Um, And then 2010 rolled around and I had three personal crises come right hot on the heels of one another. I had two miscarriages and I lost Mm -hmm. my grandma, who was a real stalwart um, hero in my life. And as we went into that winter, as is true of so many Alaskans, I really started to lean more and more on drinking as a coping skill for my stress, for my anxiety, for my depression, for my grief. Mm -hmm. And um, my second miscarriage was over Thanksgiving. And as we rolled into December, 
drinking became more than just something that I wanted to do. It was something I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I would describe my drinking. I'll, I'll get to the gory part real fast, but I would just say real fast that some people have to drink every single day. Um, and have that kind of an addictive relationship. Mine was more of an abusive relationship where I could skip a couple of days, but then once I did it, I drank too much um, and I would get pretty drunk. And so finally kind of what ended up looking like bottom for me was going to a work um, uh, Christmas party and blacking out and not remembering what had happened. And the next day people were like, Oh, Moira, you said this and you said that. Oh. And I just, felt such shame associated with that. Um, And so it took me another two weeks or so, but then I went and saw a counselor for the first time and just about everything. And I talked to her about my drinking and I said, you know, I think I have a problem with my drinking. And she asked me about it. And that was the last day I took a drink. That was December 30th. I went home that night and I had a glass of wine knowing that it was going to be my last. And, um, and I quit. And I did it without any, um, not to jump to the next question, but I did it without any um, AA or really any support. Um, And I even did it telling myself it wasn't going to be forever um, Mm. because I couldn't kind of countenance the idea of never drinking again. That seems so um, ridiculous. Um, But I, but I just stopped kind of cold Turkey, but then several months later um, got into AA through my husband. So. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't. Yeah. So I didn't know any of this about you. I mean, we're acquaintances that have crossed paths in different ways. Um, So thank you for sharing this. It's really interesting. And I think your story is so important to share because I feel like there, it's so easy to go, well, what I'm, what I'm going through isn't as bad as X, Y, Z. And that is such a huge, you know, (laughs) snowball effect because there's all kinds of terrible things going on. What it really comes down to is how is this affecting me internally? How's it affecting me externally? How's it affecting the people around me and what's going to happen next, you know? So for you to have that kind of embarrassing experience with work and then I'm sure you uh, with the shame could kind of play that tape forward and go, Oh God, like what's going to happen next or what's going to happen around my family or, you know, whatever it is. And so I think it's important for people to understand that it doesn't have to be rock bottom, like getting arrested or hurting someone, you know, it can, it's really that self check-in. And anytime somebody says to me, like, I think I have a problem, but I'm not sure you can kind of guarantee if you're asking yourself that something's off and that might not mean you need to be sober for the rest of your life. But, um, most people that don't have a problem, never ask themselves that, you know, right. Yeah. Even like real party animals. I know they're not questioning it because they're like, no, this was on purpose. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What's the issue? Yeah. 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 Well, and another side note, um, so I spent a lot of my 20s working as an executive assistant in different law firms. And so I'm very familiar with the kind of culture and the lawyers and depending on what kind of law being very high strung and there's a lot of pressure and the deadlines and it can get pretty nutty. And uh, there was a lot of like lawyers tying one on at Christmas parties and things. And so I kind of witnessed that work hard, play hard 
thing, but yeah. So that's, that's pretty interesting. It's a profession that, that lends itself to it. And, but it's a profession where alcoholism and other uh, addictions can hide because people tend to be pretty high functioning. And so they convince themselves that they're fine. And then, and then it turns out they're just not, you know, and whether that's fine, you know, fine is a, a continuum, right? And we all identify where our comfort levels are. But there's a lot of lawyers who suffer a lot, I think, because of um, an addiction or an abuse of a, of a drug or, a, or an alcohol. And it, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. So. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, let's move into that. The It doesn't have to be that way. Because um, a lot of people don't know that. And what you said about, I didn't think this was going to be forever. And maybe you still don't think that, or maybe you're like, wow, I've gone however many years and life still goes on and some things are even more fun. Um, I did the same thing where I'm like, when I finally was going to try for real, I made a commitment of one year. I'm like, if my life is not better in one year, I'm going right back to what I was doing. Because at that point, I couldn't imagine going a month, you know? Right. So, so yeah, so let us know, like, so we know what kind of put you on that different path and really great that counseling was helpful to you and then eventually getting into your 12-step program. Um, so, you know, what, what has helped you stay sober? What's helped you move through? You know, I think a lot of us, once that coping skill goes away, a lot of old things come up and we have to figure out a new way to deal with that. So, you know, how, how has the journey been for you? I would say it's been varied um, um, and just feeling the sense of responsibility and wanting to be the best mom that I can for my kids. Um, I think that when things have gone badly or been rough for me, it's been because I've been 13th stepping, not 13th stepping. What is it called when you are diagnosing other people? Oh, I don't know. Oh, um, uh, 12 stepping them. Like I'm trying to, you know, project onto other people what their problems are. Or I would say during this pandemic, this has actually been the hardest time for me in terms mm. of my sobriety. I had a, we, we choose in our household, some don't to have like cooking wine or cooking beer every once in a while we have around, we don't drink it, but we had some cooking wine this spring. And I am telling you, <laughs> I just opened it up, took a sniff, and was like, whoa. And what I thought about in that moment that helped me um, not pick up was I have a, a timer app on my phone that counts the number of years and hours and minutes since I, um, and months since I got sober. And just mentally thinking about that going back to zero was enough to be like, fine, okay, I guess I won't pick up right now. And of course, after that, I started going back to meetings to try to get myself back on track, remind myself that I am not somebody who can pick up again. Yeah. Oh, how interesting. So, and how long have you been sober? Um, nine years. Okay. So what did it feel like to all of a sudden have this urge? I mean, do you have cravings regularly or was this really kind of out of the blue? It felt out of the blue. I mean, I was told when in recovery by somebody that, that alcohol is a little bit like, um, a magnet that the further you get away from it, the less the the cravings are. And I think that's true for me. Um, so it did feel out of the blue and it was really scary, I guess, on some level, it was probably exhilarating because it was like, Ooh, I could do that, you know? And it's like, there's no law saying I can't do that. There's no, you know, there's no prohibition 
on, on me doing it. Um, but I just couldn't feel good in my conscience doing it. And so I was able to walk away from it. But I know for me, I'm lucky because not everybody has that ability. And I think some people have more of a physical compulsion and a physical addiction than I do. And so I know, I know that I'm lucky in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you put the cooking wine down. <laughs> and I poured it out too. I was like, you are done. Yeah. Good. You know, and, and I think once in a while, those moments can be helpful. Cause like you said, it was like a little mini wake up call and you went back to your support system. Yeah. So you said when you first started, you didn't have really a support team. So, you know, at this point, I would love for you to start sharing, I guess, just any like tips you have for people listening right now who are struggling, people who are like you, uh, you know, nine years ago, 10 years ago, what tips do you have? You know, what, what's been the most helpful? So I would say regularly check in on your mental health. Um, and if you're somebody who's never experienced joy on a regular basis, then you need to understand that you, you may have depression, you may have anxiety, you may have a mental illness that requires treatment and do not be afraid of getting help for that. I think the stigma associated with mental illness has gone away somewhat, but it's still not gone. Um, And people still think they're supposed to buck up and handle things, or they think that that's what normal looks like. And so I think checking in with your mental health regularly is so important because to the extent that alcohol or drugs are a coping mechanism, you can avoid that altogether if you're doing proper maintenance of your, of your mental health. Um, The second thing in the months after I quit drinking and before um, I got into AA, I was on my own and I was still with the people's places and things that I had been with. And so I would go to my law firm Friday nights and they would say, why aren't you drinking? And they clearly viewed it as an indictment of themselves. And so rather than being able to respect where I was coming from, they viewed it as like, if Moira thinks she has a problem, then I must really have a problem. Mm. And it took incredible strength in those months to just listen to my own voice and just say, no, you know, I, I know you're my superior. I know you're somebody I admire. Um, and I know you're somebody who has decades more of road underneath you than I have, but still I know what's best for me. And so I guess my second piece of advice is really to listen to yourself. And then my third piece of advice is really reach out to the support networks. Um, I think people people believe that they're not going to find themselves in the rooms in AA, that somehow it's going to be other people, people who are believers or people who are, um, you know, people from the streets, you know, I mean, there's all of these assumptions. And I think the biggest value for me of going to AA was just to see from a truly humble, grounded place, how much I was like other people who are in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. I really echo that. And uh, 12 step meetings haven't been a big part of my recovery the past few years, but they really were in the beginning. And one of my favorite things is to still to go to meetings when I'm traveling. And I think it's really fun, especially when you say you're from Alaska, everyone thinks you're cool. Um, but I remember being in a meeting, I was in North Dakota everyone in there was like old, old women who spent their days in their garden 
and they were talking about gardening and mint juleps and these things. And I like 100% couldn't relate to that, but I still knew I have the same brain as that lady, you know? And, and so there is, there is a lot of comfort because I don't know how you felt, but for me, I felt so alone throughout my addiction. I thought, what is wrong with me? Why are all these people around me doing this? And they're fine. And I am just out of control and working so hard to hide that. And then going into a room full of people that there's nothing you can say that surprises them, you know, and it's just, they're like, yeah, we all have the same brain. So anyway, we're going to do this now, you know, and it's like, oh, wow. You know, it's really comforting. It was such a relief. And there's so much beauty in that, right? Because it's about our common humanity. And, you know, that is what life is all about in my mind is finding those moments of common humanity because we share it, right? We all have the same, you know, or similar fears and concerns and, you know, think that other people think we're this or that. And it's just like, I think AA and, and the other sort of recovery places really humble you and allow you to just be okay with being yourself and understand that other people are just going through exactly the same thing you are. Right. And I think also going into those rooms, if that's something you want to do or try to go in with a really open mind, because like you were saying, we can do this with anything, but you're either looking for the differences which you'll find, or you're looking for the similarities, which are there, you yep. know? So just having that, okay, I don't have to agree with a hundred percent of everything going on in this room, but this might still be where I need to be right now. Right. Yeah. Right. Can I extract some value? Yeah. And what end counseling? So is that still a part of your journey? Is still part of what? Cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so counseling and um, uh, and um, antidepressants and stuff like that are both a part. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just who I am. I have a severe enough mental health challenge that I can't do it on my own, and mm-hmm. so that's challenging for me because you know it's sort of every day I take the pills and I'm like I don't want to have to take this. I want to be better than this, right? But um, that's just not who I am, and I know that if I don't cope with it in a way that is um, that is through counseling and through medication, then I will, I will cope with it through alcohol. I mean, when, when I had the temptation earlier this spring, I was very much aware of the fact that it was just the stress of this situation was really getting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I needed to not only go back to AA, but also again, do that step number one, that check-in with my own mental health and wellness. So I try to, I mean, it's really easy to say these things. actually doing them is a little bit more challenging, but I do, I do the best I can. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's all we can do. Yeah. And I mean, with that in mind, you're sitting here with nine years of sobriety. So yeah. that means that every time a stressors come up, you found a way to work through it in another way. And I know yeah. just from your social media and things that you have a really active life that's really full of friends and family and love and fun and adventure. So, you know, it's yeah. not like you're just sitting, sitting at home. Well, we're all sitting at home a lot lately, but you know, <laughs> you're not, you're not in pain. You're not white knuckling. It. Pain. No. And, and the biggest thing that's been helpful for me in AA is we seek progress, not perfection, right? If I were to allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good, which I did for a number of years, I will pick up uh, because you constantly are failing and failure for me is stressful. Um, 
And so for me, not picking up has to do with accepting that perfection is not going to happen and it's not worth holding on to as a goal because it just costs too much to hold that goal out there. Mm. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Perfectionism is, I think so. I heard someone say something like it's just a fancy form of fear or, you know, fear dressed up or something. Yeah. Um, So I'm glad that, that you feel that way and just are leaning into the acceptance. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I really, really just honor your story and I'm so grateful that you're willing to be vulnerable and understanding how much strength that holds. And even just by sharing, you know, the few sentences about antidepressants, I mean, that's really common and people really struggle with that stigma. And you are a thriving, amazing, intelligent woman. And it's going to help people to know that it's okay. It's okay. They're not alone in that. And for some people, that's making your life so much better. And so, again, back to the acceptance. So, thank you, Moira, so much for sharing your story with us today. I'm really, really grateful. Thanks for inviting me. It was great to be here. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. The recovery sessions are brought to you by Recover Alaska, whose vision is for Alaskans to live free from the consequences of alcohol misuse so that they are empowered to achieve their full potential. Learn more at recoveralaska.org. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review so we can get more healing messages out into the world. I love you all so much, and I'll catch you next time.